is the Vince Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. I'm glad you're here. Today's interview is with a man named Bob Bays, a St. Louis County detective that had a career that spanned more than 40 years. This conversation was completely spellbinding. In fact, at about five and a half minutes, you can hear me tear apart the index card I'd used to prepare my questions and thoughts for the interview. Bob was so good at telling stories and actually opening up the view of the world from that of a police officer that all my expectations were blown away. And in fact, as we went on further and further in the conversation, I became so engrossed in it that when I realized I was doing an interview, I had to step back and say, wait, is the recorder on? Is the video camera still working? Because I just couldn't believe that I was capturing a conversation that was this deep and rich on camera. This conversation may actually not be appropriate for all young ears. Bob's career was one where he had to look at some of the darker parts of the world. He's going to be talking about homicide investigations where he was searching for the killer of a young girl, stuff that many people in St. Louis may even actually remember the cases. He talks about doing drug stings and trying to break up prostitution and child pornography rings. So some of the content there is a little bit heavy and may not be suitable for children. But within these heavy stories, I hope you'll hear the genuineness with which he comes to this conversation. Bob talks about being a father while also looking at some of the darker parts of life. He talks about what it feels like to be a police officer that's trying to serve and protect while people at things like the Ferguson riots think that he is a part of a group of people that are not good and are doing bad things. Bob was also very open and candid about his views on things like gun control, legalized prostitution, and drug use. This conversation is one that I had never heard before, and I was so proud that Bob was willing to sit down and talk with me, and really quite grateful. I hope that if you enjoy this interview, you'll hit the like button and subscribe, and even consider sharing it with people that would find a conversation like this, something that would help them understand the world a little bit better. These conversations have turned out to be absolutely fascinating, and I hope you're finding them to be valuable. So I hope you uh, buckle in and, and enjoy this conversation because it was one of the best I've had so far. So Detective Bob Bays, thank you for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So when we were starting, I was actually asking you, what, what rank are you? And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that I don't actually have any idea how the rank system works in the world of police officers. So uh, if you were to start off, you are a St. Louis detective, mm -hmm. but what does that mean? Where does that fit in the in the world of police officers? Well, when I first started off, I was a probationary police officer, and that's coming right out of the academy. And you're usually on probation for about a year. And after a year, um, you can start looking towards rank or detective units if you want. Um, uh, detective units don't pay any extra money unless it's a high risk, like a bomb and arson, something like that. Um, but uh, then you can start taking exams to go up the ladder, become a sergeant, lieutenant, uh, captain, major. But um, it depends on where, what you want in your career, if you want that. Uh, I personally wanted to be more of a working bee. I like to work. I didn't want to uh, supervise people when I was a young policeman. I just wanted to go out there and do it. And uh, that's pretty much what I did. 
What did you think being a police officer was going to be? You, when, when did you join? How old would you have been? Uh, I was 21. I, I uh, came out of the academy in uh, March of 78. And uh, I was transferred to the uh, North County Precinct, which, and I patrolled the Castle Point area for 10 years. And uh, the whole time I was up there, I, I, I enjoyed it. I, have, I had a very good time. I really did doing, doing patrol work. Uh, ultimately, after uh, 10 years, I got the opportunity to put in for a bureau job, which was the Bureau of Special Investigations. And, they, and it encompassed a lot of things. Uh, the main thing they did was vice-type crimes, prostitution, s- sexual uh, assaults, uh, human trafficking, things like that. But we also did uh, police corruption, politician corruption, um, a lot of different types of stings. Uh, what I mean by stings, like um, like prostitution stings, John stings, where you're catching the patronizers, and so we did a variety of that. You did a little bit of the drugs, but not a lot. You did some contract killings, where people would hire us to kill somebody, um, and then I switched over to uh, to start doing a little bit more of the drug cases. Um, drug cases were okay. They were they were uh, what I want to say. They were they were long hours. A lot of long surveillances. You had to sit out and watch people for a long time. Uh, people think that you just get dope and you kick a door, and it, that's far from the case. You spend a lot of time just watching one person. Um, and then ultimately, after I spent some time in, in that unit, uh, I got an opportunity to go into homicide. They were in '93. We had a large homicide increase in St. Louis County with drug killings, basically. So they moved me into homicide, which I, I really hated. That is not something I wanted. I thought uh, I, you did a lot of work on shootings, murders, and your end result was you didn't catch anybody. And the reason I say that is a lot of the murders then were uh, drug-related, so you didn't have um, cooperation. Uh, family members wouldn't tell you what was going on. Witnesses wouldn't tell you. So you would literally write a 50, 100-page report and you had no idea what was going on because you just didn't have the cooperation. Now, uh, the cases that I really enjoyed when I was in there was the really like who done it, like a, like a real. And I don't want to say when I say a real homicide, I mean a homicide where a person like a store owner or somebody comes in and kills them. That's like a really who done it. Uh, those were interesting to work how they all came together. I did that for a year, and like I said, I really didn't like it. And then I had the opportunity to go to DEA, so I was attached to the Drug Enforcement Administration for ten years. And I did uh, some major um, conspiracies, um, did cases um, that went to various places in the United States. And um, after I did that, I came back and did like five more years in the Bureau of Special Investigation again. The train guy, because I was coming down at the end of my career. And uh, after I left St. Louis County at 51, 52, I retired. And the city of Kirkwood called me and wanted to know if I'd come and train their guys. So I kind of came out of retirement after two weeks and went to work for the city of Kirkwood. And that's a suburb of St. Louis for anybody yes, that's is. not from the yes, St. Louis area. And um, I worked for them uh, on their streets for about uh, about a month. And they wanted me to take over their unit. And they had a unit called the Special Enforcement Group, which was basically four guys. And they did pretty much what things I did through all my career. But it was just a four-man unit. And being in the city of Kirkwood, it wasn't a very large area, but they did have some problems. And they pretty much wanted me to teach their guys things that I've learned over my career, like search warrants, how to get the federal government to help you on cases like the FBI, DEA, ATF, and how to work stings. Um, so uh, I did that, and I worked there for nine years. I was looking to retire, 
when I turned 62, but an injury caused me to retire earlier from, from a previous fight on the streets. I'd uh, injured my shoulder on two different occasions and had it operated on, and it finally ended my career after I got cut on again. So my career ended probably about two years sooner than I wanted. Holy gee. I mean, I could uh, actually actually just tear my notes in half because whatever <laughs> I was expecting about this interview to be like, this is not at all. So uh, you had a much more colorful career. I thought you were going to come in here and say, you know, I was a police officer and we like to keep the streets safe. And yeah. uh, you, you really had uh, a career that showed you the darker side of the world, it sounds like. Yes, I did. I Yes, I did. And, and I'll go back and start a little bit more like uh, on my patrol. When I was working in Castle Point, Back in the late seventies, early eighties, it was it was the 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 the, the neighborhood was, was predominantly black and white. It was pretty much mixed. And back then, believe it or not, we would get calls for cross burnings in the front yard in seventy eight, seventy nine. Uh, what you had was um, uh, a lot of the airport had bought out large sections of Kinlock, and people now had money that lived in those areas, and they were buying into North County. Uh, a lot of the whites didn't like it. So you pretty much had racial problems between the two groups. And uh, it went on for a couple of years and eventually... Wait, so I don't understand. So there were... Uh, people got their land purchased and then they had money to buy more land. Yeah, people that lived kind of like in Kinlock and Berkeley and the airport came and had bought out a lot of the land for more airport. And uh, people basically came into money, which was good for them because now they could buy a better house, better school district... So a, a, a lot of the uh, Afro-Americans moved into North County. A lot of them moved into the Castle Point area and bought houses there. And a lot of the old-timer white people really didn't like it. So, and, and I'm not saying all of them, but we, we did have some racial problems back then, back in the late 70s. But that's totally different than the image that most people imagine. You, you don't, that, that, I've not heard that before, right, mm -hmm. where... Where you're saying a group of people came into, mon into money and they were gentrifying in a, in a different way, mm -hmm. and now you had people saying, "We don't care if you have money, stay right. out of here." Right, pretty much, yeah, yeah. And uh, eventually, the neighborhood uh, did change. A lot of the white people moved out, and um, I uh, I continued, like I said, worked there for ten years. Um, had a very good time up there. I did things, and I'll I'll touch on a little bit that, uh, and I don't want your audience to take it wrong, but I did things which is now called neighborhood policing. And I did it back there 40 years ago. And what I mean by back is they started programs later on with neighborhood policing where they wanted policemen to get out and talk to people and, 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 and just you know get to know the, the neighbors. Well, back then, that was normal for us. I mean, and what I mean by that is I use a, a lot of the kids didn't have a lot. And I literally would use some of my own money to buy things. And I could only buy things that I could buy in bulk that I knew I could get the most out of. And what I mean by that is like, a, like a, those freezing popsicles. I'd go to the Schnooks and buy a case of those. And I don't remember how much they were, $5. But literally, I could probably give them to 30 different kids. So we'd sit, well, I wouldn't say sit, we'd stand behind the police car and we'd all be eating these bomb pop things, you know. And, uh, and I enjoyed that with a lot of those kids. A lot of those kids didn't have anything. Uh, and what I'm talking about is I went out and bought like watermelons because I could get a watermelon for like $1.50 at Schnooks back in those days. I could get the most out of it. So I would open up an emergency blanket on the trunk of my police car, and we'd cut up watermelons, and we'd sit there in the street and eat watermelons, being all the kids. Now, why I say that is this day and age, if somebody would associate a white policeman eating watermelons with black kids, people have a tendency to think, oh, well, he's racist because he's 
he's putting those two together. And that was far from that. It was, it was using what resources you had to buy the most what you could because it was your money, you know? So, and what was the benefit of spending time with those kids when you were a patrol officer there? Just to get to know the kids. The kids were great. I mean, during, usually during the daytime and the evening times, the people out there were, were really good people. It's the nighttime where you started having the people come out that caused your problems, you know, your crime, your car break-ins, uh, your assaults. So those kids, pretty much, when it started getting dark, it was time to go in the house and pretty much stay in the house. Uh, and I think that's pretty much the way it is. A lot of, a lot of your, uh, your impoverished neighborhoods are like that, where when nighttime comes, people go in the house. They don't, they don't want to be out there. So I did it more so because I just enjoyed the kids, you know. And when you were a patrolman, what were you seeing uh, as an officer that you didn't see as a regular civilian? What, what changed about your view of the world when you're now interacting with some of the rougher parts of life? Well, the biggest change that, uh, that I saw was um, domestic. Uh, I didn't realize, and I'm going back then, and I'm talking back in those days, is uh, domestic was a family domestic assaults were handled totally different. Pretty much you would go to a call and you would tell the husband, grab your stuff and get out of here. And if you did lock the husband up, usually a majority of the time the wife would drop prosecution and the case would be done with. There was nothing we could do. And then a day later, a week later, we'd be back in the same houses all the time. And when and changes came eventually where the state would automatically prosecute you. If the wife didn't want to prosecute you, the state would say, we're prosecuting you anyway, which helped law enforcement a lot. I mean, it, it kind of took it out of the victim's hands and put it in the state's hands. And uh, it, that, that part helped. And when I, when I'm, when I, reason I'm bringing that up, I didn't realize there was that much domestic violence out there until I got in police work. Give me a sense. What do you mean? Oh, I would say it wouldn't be uncommon to go to two or three a day of domestic problems. And sometimes you would on a, like on a Saturday or, or on a um, holiday weekend, you could be running from a domestic call to domestic call. And not all of them are real super violent. It could be an argument, a fight, a push, but sometimes it would be a stabbing, uh, Stuff being thrown through the windows, you know, clothes set on fire. I mean, some of them got pretty bad, but uh, there was a lot, a lot more than I really thought were out there when I got into police work. I, di I didn't expect that many. And then you think the, the fact that the state started prosecuting that, did that mean you locked more people up or you just separated more couples that were having disputes? Or what, what do you well, think? Well, you were forced into locking people up then because the way they wrote it was whoever uh, appeared to be the most um, aggressive. Or the, or the other person had the most injuries, you were forced to lock that person up. And uh, it helped because you'd, your victim couldn't say, I don't want to prosecute, and you had to walk away. You literally were locking people up on that very first call. And back then, you could go to a house five or six times in one day. And if the husband wouldn't leave, you pretty much had your hands tied, you know. He may walk around the block, come back, and they'd fight again. And the wife said, well, I don't want to prosecute. So that would go on and on and on. But uh, when we started locking people up for, for the assaults, it helped. Um, that, that, was a, that, was, that was an eye-opener for me, how many there really were. It has to be if you're a police officer and you're seeing whether it's domestic disputes or somebody calls you. People don't call police officers very often when things are going right. They, they call them at some of their lowest moments. So you had to have been seeing aspects of humanity uh, where, where people were really in a vulnerable spot, not just domestic violence, but 
somebody died in their house. Yeah, uh, seen a lot of that. Uh, one of the one of the cases that I remember, I was I was a probationary police officer. I was riding with my training officer, and I was all. This is my third day on, and it just shows you how you remember things that 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 hits you. Is my third day, we get a call for a suicide, and we go to a man's house in Castle Point, and um, that old man had shot himself with a uh, rifle, stuck it to his under his chin, and literally we were trying to figure out how he did it, but it looks like he might have used his foot. But anyway, he committed suicide. It was the first time I ever had to touch a body to get it, pick it up, because he was wedged between the bed and a dresser, and I had to pick it up in order to get him on a gurney to get him out of the house. So for me, being 21 years old, it's the first time I've ever seen a real body, and I had to actually touch it and pick it up. Uh, I remember washing my hands all day long. I just felt like I need to keep washing my hands. And uh, uh, that was that was an eye-opener. I remember that one to this day, the very first body I ever saw. Uh, and then you had to deal with the family who showed up, and obviously they were distraught. And there's not really, I don't think in my whole career I've been able to come up and say something to a grieving family that I felt was the right thing to say because you don't know what to say I mean um, they, they're just hysterical and there's not much I can say to calm them down uh, just to talk to them uh, some people take it better but most people it's pretty hard on them and how frequently is this happening for just a regular patrol officer how many times are they going to touch a dead body or, or tell a grieving family in this area? I mean, certainly it, uh, it, depends. it depends. I mean, there's a, there's a lot more suicides and, and, um, death overdose now than there was back in my day. Uh, when I started working for Kirkwood, I made the comment to those guys. I go, you guys have a lot of suicides in this town and you have a lot of death overdose, like heroin, stuff like that. And I don't know if it was because of the change with the dope, more dope was being used. But I don't remember. I don't recall back in my St. Louis County days having a lot of hair, a lot of drug deaths. They were either uh, typical homicides, suicides, uh, type deaths. Um, you, did you handle a lot? No, but you, you know, some of them. Sometimes you could handle a couple. Sometimes you may not handle one for a long time. Um, and on homicide, when I was on homicide, you were obviously called out for every homicide. And some of the suicides you were called out to. Uh, I would say in my one year in homicide, I probably probably dealt with probably 10 to 20 deaths. Um, in one year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, I'm, and I'm talking about a combination of suicides, drug overdose, and sudden I'm, death infants. I've never seen it. Well, I've seen one dead body outside of a funeral home. Mm -hmm. Outside of that. So, so to hear you say... 20 in a single year is staggering to me. Yeah, yeah. It's not, uh, if you're a homicide investigator, it's not uncommon to come across multiple deaths. Um, in, in my career, uh, I had a couple of uh, uh, cases that were very big cases in the St. Louis area. Uh, and when I talk about them, I don't say they were mine. I worked them with other guys. We solved those cases as a group. I would never like to see a person say, I solved this crime myself. No, you didn't. You did it as a group. While one person's running off doing a lead that takes him nowhere, and you happen to get the lead that takes you somewhere, everybody has a job to do. So uh, I, had some, I had some pretty good cases. I had, uh, I had a, uh, 
the uh, Cassidy Center death. I don't know if you recall that one. No, you know, I'm a transplant to St. Louis, okay. and so which which is probably good for our listeners because you can tell me and I'll kind of back you up if I don't understand the okay. St. Louis geography or history. Okay, back in 93, um, there was a, a girl that was uh, abducted and murdered, and she was found in bush wildlife, and her name was Angie Hausman. Uh about a week later, another little girl was abducted in Hayeswood, Cassie Center, and her body was found a couple weeks later in the city, uh, murdered also. So at that time in 93, when I was in homicide, everybody started thinking we have a serial child killer because we have two little girls dead within a month. And uh, everybody was pretty scared back then. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners from the St. Louis area, older ones, probably remember this. Uh my my group was part of that investigation, and, and uh, my daughter, for some reason, always likes to hear about how it was solved. Uh, and it was solved by uh, by uh, forensics. I mean, it's, it's really what solved this case. And the way the case went down is pretty much the little girl had a lanyard on her wrist, which was an alarm. And uh, somebody found the alarm in the street going off and she was gone so they thought she got pulled into a car now why why would she have been wearing a lanyard with uh an arm? I, i'm not really sure why the mom got it i think the mom may have got it because of the first murder was this around the time sure. when children were showing up on milk cartons and you're uh you're... i don't really recall that too much about the milk cartons but <laughs> but uh I, i'm not sure why the mom gave her a okay. lanyard but it was basically a pin and an alarm and if the pin got pulled out the alarm went off okay and the alarm was found in the street and um Ultimately, when she was found in the city, she was wrapped up in a, in a blanket. One thing that you do in homicide is you have um, debriefings every day. You got to know what everybody's found out the night before, the day before. You got to know what evidence that the lab has processed. And uh, so every day we'd have a debriefing. The FBI was involved. And it kind of shows you how forensics does it, really makes your case. Is the FBI originally had a profiler. And they were saying that it was probably a white male, and he probably did both murders. So when you're told that, you start thinking that. You're thinking, okay, let's look for white guys. Let's look for this, let's for that. Well, the forensics, uh, and I'll give you some of the clues, and we'll see if you can find out what it was, since you weren't from St. Louis. Uh, On the blanket, when they did the blanket, there was uh, aluminum shavings, and there were paint chips, some white, some orange, on the blanket so that's one of your clues so what are you looking for paint chips on the blanket i i have no idea so we started looking at maybe a machine shop okay okay all right and uh then they told us that they had tire tracks of dually tires you know what dualies are oh yeah okay So that well, was for anybody that doesn't, it's it's two sets of tires on each side, typically in the in the back. Correct. So they had dually tire prints on the lot where the body was found. So uh, and and when I say this, I'm not saying I was the only one. Everybody had a part. Me and my partner went to the U-Haul in the neighborhood. Now, what is U-Haul? Oh, big trucks. Yeah. What color? Uh, I guess red and or like or- an orange, orange, orange and white. Oh yeah, yeah. You're right. Orange yeah, and white. yeah. And the floors are made out of aluminum. And they always have chip uh, paint coming out of them. So we went to the local U-Haul, and we asked them, hey, give us a list of everybody that may have rented the trucks. No way. Between the day, two days before the murder and a couple of days after the murder. And one person showed up in the neighborhood who lived in the house 
right where the lanyard was found on the street. So now that was my part right then and there. Another investigator got a call from a lady the same day that lived across the street. And she says, you know, nothing for nothing. I know you guys have been around the neighborhood for a couple weeks now, but the neighbor across the street had a U-Haul truck and he backed into my mailbox. Can you guys do something about him damaging my mailbox? (laughs) And that's when it all started coming together. They checked the tire prints. The tires matched the one at the scene. And they did some more forensic on the, on the blanket, and they found an uh, uh, Afro-American pubic hair, and that threw the whole FBI Profiler thing out. down. Wow. Yeah. So it was, it was a guy named Thomas Brooks. He confessed to the murder, and they drug her in the house, beat her, tried to rape her, and they left the body in there for about a week. And it started to smell, and he decided he had to get the body out of there, and he rented a U-Haul and took it down to the city where he used to live and dumped the body in a vacant lot. And that's how the crime was solved. Yeah. So a lot of your listeners might remember that, that, that crime. So when you, when you decide it's him, you mm-hmm. have the evidence, mm-hmm. were you then on the case to go arrest him? Or you said- no, like I said, well, you, your partner's a two. And my job that day after we figured out was him, because he originally had an alibi. He worked at a McDonald's. And they checked his alibi, and it showed he clocked in. Well, somebody else clocked him in. They later found out when it all started coming out because he was he was he was spoken to the day of the murder because the lander was found in front of the house. And, all, and, and a footnote of some of this stuff is his sister and a lady in the house knew he did this and the body was in there. And they were also charged uh, with some crimes. And um, uh, he pretty much confessed to the whole thing. He ultimately died in prison of AIDS. Uh, so. Good that's end, Lord. That's the end of that story. How many years did you work in police? I was in 40 years. 40 years. So this sounds like a once in a 40-year story. But, I mean, is this it, are, are solving cases like that common? No. I mean, uh, there's, there's a variety of ways you, crimes are solved. I mean, I could tell you a couple. I, I, had, I helped on another case. Um, and uh, basically what happened in this homicide case is we get a call to the guy's house. Uh, the house has been ransacked. He's laying there. He'd been executed. Uh, looks like a drug killing. His pockets are pulled inside out. Uh, he has no shoes on. One of his socks is hanging there. He has his clothes on. And uh, the sad thing is, is before we got there, the family went through the house and took everything they wanted. So the scene has now been contaminated. Anyway... <clears throat> The guy that was doing the case. Now like they're I, stepping over the body to get to... to personal like, items, yeah. They, they, they basically, I hate to say it, looted the house before the police showed up. Good Lord. So uh, knowing that the scene's been contaminated, uh, I went on to do other investigations and the, the guys that were handling that one. So I, I do recall that one. But the reason I tell you the story is uh, they arrest a guy, um, they take it to court, and the defendant's sitting at the table with his lawyer... And they bring the victim's sister up to the stand to testify. And while she's under the stand, they swear her in. And they say, do you know the individual at the table? And she says, yeah, he's a friend of the family. And he's wearing my dead brother's boots that he had on that day. Oh, my God. He had the boots on. And when I told you about how the socks were moved off, they had taken his boots after they killed him. He had some really expensive, like, alligator boots or ostrich boots so she pointed the boots out and they stopped the trial right there and had a mistrial he ultimately pled guilty 
So it just shows you some of the weird stuff that happened. When you were a, a patrol officer mm-hmm. and you're doing this for 10 years, are you looking at being a detective and thinking, oh, this this will get me out of all the domestic disputes that I'm having to go to over and over again? Or, or like, because it sounds like you went towards um, an inner circle of hell is what mm-hmm. it sounds like. Why would anybody choose that? Um, I think a lot of guys that want to go into detective bureau want something specialized, uh, something that, that might interest them. There's some guys that love patrol, that like being a policeman day in and day out. Uh, I wanted to change. I mean, I enjoyed patrol. If I never would have got it, I'd have been happy. But um, I was asked by a lieutenant that I had that was a street lieutenant of mine, and he asked me to come into the bureau. He says, I think you'd like this. So I gave it a shot, and that's when I went to the, the Bureau of Special Investigations. Um, had a lot of prostitution cases, human trafficking, uh, did stings with Johns. Um, you know, if you're talking about stories, I have a story there for you that a lot of your listeners will remember this one too. Uh, me, well, let me back up, I'll preface this. Back then, police officers in the Bureau did stuff that they probably shouldn't have done. And what I mean by that <laughs> is... We would go out and do a dope deal, and there would just be two of us. You'd buy dope, and I'd back you up. That was it. And that was the way everybody did it. That's the way we were taught. And what I'm saying, that's not the way you probably should have done it. When we would do uh, prostitution stings, uh, it would be three of us. It would be a female undercover copper and two guys, and that was it. So what I'm saying is you never knew when danger was going to come, but you never thought of it because that's the way you were taught. That's the way everybody did it before you, so that's what you did. And why I say that is... We did a sting, and I'll tell you two stings. We did a sting at, out at the airport. Uh, we got hired by a guy that was running a prostitution business. He hired the undercover. And the uh, reason we were after him is he was, he was manufacturing child pornography. And that was the goal of trying to get this guy. So before he would let us get into the manufacturing of child pornography, he uh, wanted the female undercover to go see a really special client of his. $150 for sex, basically. So he set it up. We wired her up. She goes out to the airport and goes to this hotel room and meets this guy. Well, the deal is made, sex for money. and she goes, Are you guys following behind in a van? or what No, we're, at, we're in the hallway. She's in the room. We're in the hallway monitoring the listening device that she's wearing. And she gives a code word. And believe it or not, your listeners might get a joke. But the code word back then, because you have to make fun of some of this, we used to say potato soup. <laughs> you know, and reason working that into yeah, and and, and, and the reason we would say something because it was so out of normal, you know, because some coppers would use like, uh, oh, it looks good, you know, as a and you would think, well, what happens if you're looking at something like food and it looks good? And we barged the door down. <laughs> so we told guys, and I trained guys, you got to use something that is not part of the conversation. So we told her, potato soup. So she was talking, blah, blah, and something along the lines, probably like, oh, yeah, I had lunch and I ate potato soup. Man, my stomach don't feel good. Well, there you go. So anyway, we knock on the door and get in, and the person in the room turns out to be the head prosecutor for St. Louis City, George Peach. Oh, man. And uh, that was a firestorm when we did that guy. Uh, a lot of your listeners may remember. Did you that. know it, or you you no. you were sitting in the hallway thinking this is we just going to be some random, random guy? Random guy. We had no, and people thought that we knew it <laughs> that we may have said we had no clue we were being sent that. Like so, we were sent to him by a third party to service him before we could get into child pornography. And um, when even when I walked into the room, I'm looking at him and I'm like, I know this guy. 
but he had a flannel shirt on and blue jeans. And usually he's always in suit and tie. And I'm thinking, man, what I, I go, you got ID? And he throws his city ID, which is, shows he's a prosecutor for St. Louis City. I mean, he's like the boss. And I'm like, oh my God, now what? So obviously being a low man on the totem pole, I call supervisors and says, you may want to come out here, make a decision what we're going to do. And, uh, uh, I can go into a longer part of the story, but I'll brief it up. At, uh, By all means, we got all the time. That there's unlimited uh, amount of tape here. So. I, I will say stuff that uh, right now that probably um, if, a, if a supervisor from St. Louis County is listening back then would not be happy with is uh, when we caught Peach, we were ordered to come back to. Now, we took all this information and didn't arrest him, didn't do anything. We left him and we all went back to headquarters and uh, I was given the task, being the oldest guy there, to write the report, which I wrote most of them anyway. So I wrote the report the way it happened, and I turned it in, and I was told to write it where charges really couldn't be brought against him. Whoa. Yeah. Who, who, uh, you don't have to name names, but it's somebody that's your supervisor that's saying, hey. A, pretty, uh, a fairly high supervisor. Pretty, I mean, a couple levels up. So write it in such a way that if, if, if somebody prosec- would read it. If, the, if you would read it and the prosecutor would read because we weren't going to take it to the prosecutor because you, there wasn't enough evidence in the report. But if somebody would have found out and pulled the report, they would have gone, well, they never had a case anyway. Okay. Okay. So follow me. That didn't sit well with me at all. And I, and I, I, I remember having a little bit of an argument saying this is not right. I said, I will write it. But I'm going to write it based on your your directions, and they go, "What do you mean?" I want them to say it's going to start off per the authority of blah blah blah. The following circumstances have happened, and they and they weren't happy with that either because they didn't want their name on that. Absolutely, line. Yeah. and and you got to remember now this was a, this guy was a very important person. I mean, we were getting calls from uh, all the daytime talk shows. I mean, wanting interviews from us on on this guy, and we were told we couldn't talk to anybody. Uh, I ultimately made a copy of the original report to protect myself because I figured if I write a report that's not true and then he decides to sue, I'm the one who's going to get it. And uh, so I, I made a copy. I turned in the change report under protest. And ultimately, he was found that he had done other things with while in office embezzling money. They found it later on. And um, they came back and go, we're going to go ahead and keep that original report. And I remember, distinctly remember, opening up my drawer and pulling out the original. I go, here it is. And they just kind of looked at me and I said, you weren't going to put me in a trick bag on this case. I'm just going to let you know that. So um, that's the way that happened. A lot of people don't know that on that case. I'm probably shocked. But uh, um, I think they didn't want the head prosecutor to take charges. Holy jeez. Yeah. So and so as you're writing this up, are you thinking my career is on the line? I'm, I'm... you I, I thought of a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I thought of, well, if I don't write it, I'm definitely getting kicked out of the bureau. It's gonna be uh it's gonna black flag me my whole career. Um if I do write it, I'm basically lying in a report. I'm covering for somebody that I shouldn't be covering for. The and you don't care about him. He's, I don't, I don't he's care doing about something him, wrong, yeah. You know? But uh, I thought, okay, I'll write it based on your, you telling me. And that way it puts it back on them. So they ultimately never did submit the, that 
change report in the system. They held on to it. And then when all this other stuff came out. But it did it did uh, it did come out in the in the news that he had been trying to pick up a prostitute. Oh yeah, it was big news, big news. If you lo- if you Google his name, it was big news here in St. Louis. Yeah, because he was real big against pornography, prostitution. I mean, he was one of those crusader type guys, and uh, oh. here he gets caught. You know, and Tapa, like I said, they found out that uh, he was embezzling money to pay for the prostitution stuff as well. He I, I think he gave up his law license and. They, he pled guilty to some felonies, and they actually tried it in Cole County because he couldn't do it in St. Louis. Everybody knew him. So I don't know whatever happened to him. So as a person that worked in the in prostitution stings, there's definitely a movement going on probably more out in the West Coast to uh, decriminalize prostitution. Mm-hmm. As a police officer, what do you think of that? You know, I got mixed emotion on it. I've seen both sides. I've seen moms prostitute because they made very good money. And, and, and there's nothing I could say or do for them to quit. On the other side, I see people that were forced into it that had no choice. Moms put them in early. Dads made them do it. A pimp made them do it. Um, so I see both sides of it. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not sure what the answer is going to be. Um, if you have it, you definitely got a, some type of regulations. I mean, you obviously have diseases, uh, forcing somebody to do it that doesn't want to do it. I don't know. I, I mean, that's, 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 you're going to have to debate that one to figure out if they ought to legalize or not, you know. And then you get into the marijuana stuff, you know, because I did narcotics for a long time for DEA. Uh, this will probably shock people. I, I always thought it should have been legalized. I mean, I grew up in the 70s. Uh, I felt it should have been legalized. It's not. I have to enforce the law, you know, change the laws. I think the problem that with them legalizing now, I don't think we've thought it through. And when I tell people that, because when, when they ask me, what do you think? I go, well, I think that'll legalize it, but I think they ought to make sure everything's in play. And they go, what do you mean? I go, well, do you want some policemen showing up at your house and smoking dope in a police car? No. Well, why can't I if you can? You tell me. Or do you want that surgeon operating on your brain right after you had a joint? So you got to regulate when you can smoke, how much THC should be in the product, just like alcohol and drinks. And I don't think a lot of that's been in play, even the money. Uh, the federal government says marijuana is still illegal. It's a lot of the states say it's not. You can't deposit your money in banks because they're federally regulated. So what do you do with the money? I mean, it's just everybody's not on the right page. Everybody, you just, you just can't say legalize it and then it's legal. There's things got to be put in play, and I don't think anybody's thought all this out yet. Yeah, and I, the people that I've met that have been associated with it are almost look at it as like the gold rush in the sense that the only people that will make money are the ones that get the first mover advantage. Mm-hmm. And so there is a lot of, I'm going to jump in there even though things are not clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you think this will all play out? Well, obviously, it's going in the direction of legalizing it. Um, I think eventually it's going to have to sort itself out. I think the federal government's going to have to decriminalize it um, and maybe to a point where they handpick certain cases based on criteria. And what I mean by that is if you've got a guy that's, that's growing two or three plants at home, he's not a big moneymaker. He's doing it for per. You've got a guy that's bringing in tons. Uh, you're talking about a whole different aspect of money coming in you know i've done cases with tractor trailers with 2500 pounds of marijuana were in them and uh the amount of money that was being generated being sent back uh, i did a, a jamaican operation and all the money was going back to jamaica um and you know it's 
Big money makes people do a lot of crazy stuff. So I lived out in Mendocino, California, which is the place that uh, people that think Berkeley is too conservative, they move up to Mendocino. And at the time, it was considered the Emerald Triangle because Mm -hmm. California was right on that verge of legalizing for medical. And I had actually, I don't know, maybe in college I saw marijuana, but I never saw it. Then I moved to Mendocino and you could go to people's houses that had a greenhouse that was, you know, put together the three or four greenhouses would be bigger than a football field. And that's when you realize like, Oh, this is a huge operation. This is, this is on a scale of factory work. Mm -hmm. And that was what told me we're, we're going in the direction of legalization because you can't have this much done in the open, this much money, but I guess you could say the same thing about things like heroin, and you were saying that that's becoming a pretty big problem in the in the U.S. or in St. Louis. Yeah, and you have people that want to legalize heroin, and you got people that want to legalize meth. I mean, where do you draw the line? I I, I don't know. Um, do you legalize one and not the other one? Or do you legalize them all? I, I don't have the answer for that. That's 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 for people to debate and uh, to find out what is the best solution for all of us. You know. So you mentioned that when you were doing the prostitution stings, that was all a part of Vice as a whole. Yes. What is Vice? That's you know you always hear it with Miami Vice, but what does it actually mean? And what what is the purview that you were kind of overseeing? Well, the, the Vice that we did, and like I said, the unit we belonged to was called the Bureau of Special Investigation, and predominantly we did prostitution cases. We did uh, uh, Johns guys that were looking for prostitutes. We would do um, human trafficking where somebody wanted to have sex with kids. Um, we would do, um, back then St. Louis County had an ordinance that you couldn't sell pornography, a video. Uh, so we would enforce pornography laws. Um, and then you would have problems at your mall bathrooms and rest areas with like homosexual activity We were, we had to do those type of investigations. And, uh, I remember we, I, I talked to a guy, um, out of California, at one of the uh, rest stops that we were working. And we'd work these things for like six, seven weeks straight every day, you know. Uh, but I remember talking to a guy to California, and he was saying, like, in California, it wasn't a big deal for, for a gay guy to come to one of the rest stops and pick up somebody. And uh, I told him, I said, uh, do you really think it's fair to everybody else that you pick this as a place? And he wanted to know what I meant by that. And I go... I've been doing this long enough. I remember sitting, and this might sound kind of weird, I remember going into the bathroom, standing there, acting like I'm washing my hand to get picked up. And moms would send their little boys into the bathroom by themselves when I'd have two guys in the stall basically doing each other. And I would think, that, that's why you enforce the laws in these, in these places, because you have that type of stuff. I mean, I remember having guys come out masturbating, walking across the floor. You know, and you're thinking, this is a this is a rest area where people come in and out. People are sending their kids in. And I told the guy, I go, that's why we enforce the laws here. This is not the place. If you want to go do it, find a place that, that you can do that. Because uh, some people, we, we would get criticized by some people that would just say, you know, uh, we are against homosexuals. No, that's not what it is. It's how you're doing it that we're against. Uh, but uh, we did a lot of those. How old were you when, when you're in the vice squad? Um, I probably was 31. So raising kids then at that point. Yeah. yeah. And what is that like to be a father, have kids at home 
and uh, you, you know, you were talking about uh, child pornography and and uh, uh, sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that is pretty uh, grisly things to be seeing every day, thinking about every day, working on all the time, and then come home to your wholesome family of wife and kids. Yeah, uh, when I first got into the um, child pornography stuff, uh, that was an eye opener. That uh, some of the videos that you would see that uh, somebody could be that heartless to a child and brutalize children like that. I mean, uh, those things haunt you. I still think about some of those. Um, And then you get home and you think about your kids and you're thinking, where's society going? You start getting like, uh, you think society's falling apart. You think like, oh my God, I'm not ever gonna let my kids out. And I do believe I was probably very protective of my kids. I mean, I taught them things that just was Probably not normal dad stuff, you know. I was always telling them, look out, watch where you're going, you know. I had the, your typical police attitude of going into a restaurant, and you pretty much can pick out policemen that are off duty. They're the ones that sit towards the back with their with their back against the wall, watching the door. And that's just something that's instilled in you, you know, uh, how they carry their hands, you know. The right hand is always a free hand, so you can grab your, your gun. Uh, you're used to putting things in your left hand like your flashlight. Um it's just things like that that you don't even think about that you just do. And uh, to this day, I still sit at the back wall in a restaurant and watch the front door waiting for whatever's going to come through the door, which never happened. So of all the things that you're teaching your kids, and you know, you maybe went over the, the top a little bit, what are the things that you would say, hey, but of, these, these are actually good things to teach your kids in order to keep them safe. Uh, you know, and obviously you're typical. Don't talk to strangers. Don't play for the, uh, I got the puppy dog candy type of stuff. You know, uh, we also had safe words. If somebody tried to come and get you, what was your safe word? Uh, later on in life, I used to tell them, you know, when they started getting the school shootings, any place you go, look for the exit. Know where you're going to, how you're going to get out of that room if something goes bad. No matter where you're at, the movie theaters, anything. Think about what you're going to do when the shit hits the fan and how you're going to get out of here. And we, we told our kids that all the time. I mean, always be prepared to your surroundings. Uh, going to your car, just don't walk up your car and get the key and stick it in there. Get your keys out and start looking around. And, and you almost think it's like a paranoia, but uh, you want your family to be safe. Um, you hear about stuff like that all the time. And I sit back and think, well... I hate to be a Monday quarterback, but if you would have been looking around prior to getting out there, you may have saw it. And some people, it's amazing how their head is in the sand. Uh, I've done surveillances on drug deals, um, murder investigations, and I'll be sitting in front of somebody's house for hours, and not one person would call the police on me. Just They'd see me sitting there, older white man sitting in a car by himself for three or four hours. That's not suspicious to you. It's suspicious to me. I'd call, <laughs> I'd call the police on you. I just would. What's he doing? He, he doesn't live here. I know the car. And most people didn't care. You know? And, and uh, every once in a while, you'd have somebody walk up to you. Every great once in a while, and go, can I help you with anything? I go, I'm a police officer. I'm watching the house. Oh, didn't mean to bother you. I go, yeah, bother me. I'm glad you asked. It's very good of you. You know? Some policemen, on the other hand, would take offense to that. You know, after the person leaves, what the hell is he bothering me for? Stay out of my business. And I'd always turn to him and go, people like that's the one that solve our crimes because we're watching. Yeah, the citizen that's willing to go up and knock on your window is going to be the one that's keeping their eye out on other things. Oh, yeah. Too. Oh, yeah. I mean, you got to think about that, how, how, uh, how ballsy that is 
for someone to walk up to a window and knock on it and say, can I help you? What are you doing here? When you have no clue who's, on, who's in that car. Uh, luck be it, for me, it was a policeman. So you're doing a lot of stakeout work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe you said you did some undercover work as well. Yes. So yes. What, in what circumstance does a group of police officers get together and say, we've got to go undercover. And then what cost is that? You know, if you're going to change who you are and start behaving like you're somebody else, that's got to be psychologically a little difficult. Well, you know, it really depends on how deep undercover you're going. I mean, there's different levels of deep undercover. I mean, uh, I didn't do real deep, deep undercover. I know guys that, that, that got deep into motorcycle gangs that looked the part that if they walked in a room, you go, that guy's going to kill me. Uh, they looked the part. I didn't go that deep. Uh, a lot of the stuff uh, I did, I may grow, I may have grown my hair out, maybe some facial hair, but I didn't go real deep. I had fake IDs, and the fake IDs were more so for the prostitution industry. Um, they would ask you for your identification, and then they'd quiz you. Wait, wait, who would ask you for your the prostitutes? They they would ask that you if you go to a prostitute, they'll ask you to see ID. Yes. Yeah. Why? They want to make sure you're not the police. <laughs> they want to make that sure you are who you say you are. Because with, with the technology today, I mean, if somebody got on the computer and Googled my name, they'd probably come up to something and go, oh, I think he's a policeman, you know? You just, so you would get legitimate fake ID. I mean, they were real IDs, but they were fake. Um, yeah, you'd get quizzed. You get, sometimes you get quizzed hard. Some of the really um, good prostitution operations that were ran by very smart pimps, and a lot of them were, believe it or not, out of Florida and um, New York and Minnesota. And they would bring the women down here, and it was more human trafficking. They were forced to come down here. Those guys would school their girls to check other ID, social security card. If I said I flew in, let me see your license, your your airplane license, or your um, your ticket. Ticket. I mean, we get those types of quizzes. And and if you weren't a fast talker and didn't have the proper identification, they'd turn around and walk out of the room. Um, I. So you said smart smart pimps. The only ones that I have any concept of are the crazy dressed people that I see on 70s movies, right? That, yeah. but w- what is a pimp really like in, in the U.S.? Um, they haven't changed a lot. They're still violent when the money's not there. Uh, the girls are coerced into doing it, and, and a percentage of them are fed the drugs to stay in it. But the majority of the pimps that I've come across and uh, – I've made into human trafficking cases, which I prosecute federally because there's more jail time. All of them is your typical pimp that you see on TV. Really? Nice that you see, but violent and vicious with the girls. You know, um, I did some investigations on some pimps uh, out of Minnesota where some of the girls never are probably dead, but they never showed up. No one ever know what ever happened to them. So it wouldn't be uncommon for a pimp to kill some prostitute because... No one's going to be looking for her anyway. So uh, are there pimps out there like that? Yeah. Are there other pimps out there not like that? Not so many. At least in my career, there wasn't. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I expected you to, to say, no, they look like a businessman. or No. No. no there, there's a... I, I had one guy out of Kansas City. I did a, did a prostitution case out of Kansas City. And they were bringing the girls here to St. Louis. And I will say the guy was smart. Uh, his wife and him ran it. They had several girls. I had them hire one of my undercover females, and uh, we were stinging the Johns, and then we were sending the money back, and they were also doing credit cards, and we were sending it back. And the IRS was working with us on this one. 
So ultimately what ended up happening, they got charged for, for, for promoting prostitution and for laundering money. We hit their house in Kansas City, and this house, half a million dollars maybe. I mean, beautiful house. They had it custom built. They paid cash for as much things they, they, they could. And the reason we looked into the, how they were spending their money, because the federal government's like to seize your stuff. Well, they, they put a pool in for $30,000, paid the contractor cash. And he said it was all in 10s and 20s. He thought they were dope dealers. Well, they weren't. Uh, they had a false room in the basement. And the only reason we found that out is a contractor told us, hey, by the way, do you know about this false room in the basement? And we're like, no. So when we hit the house with a federal search warrant, we found the room behind a glass mirror and all the credit card slips and everything to the business was in this room. And ultimately, they pled out to money laundering and promoting prostitution on a federal case. Yeah, uh, they brought in a lot of money. But what I'm getting at, this guy didn't fit your stereotype. He's a white guy, businessman. If you saw him, you would thought he was probably a banker or something. I mean, didn't fit the stereotype. So you're talking about sending in uh, female police officers. Mm-hmm. What is it? What are the What are the thoughts going through their head as they're putting on a microphone or they're going? I mean, are they in danger as soon as they go to do this? Or no, the cops are right outside, so it's not a big deal. Like, how, how does some? I mean, most people that are going to work at State Farm Insurance or you know into their office job, they never encounter this level of pressure. Correct. Correct. So who wants to do this and what's going on in their head when, when they start doing it? Yeah. You, first of all, you got to want to do it. You know, you can't have somebody, hey, I want you to do the undercover work. And they're like, I don't want to do it. Because part of the stuff I've done in my career is train people. And sometimes I would get a girl off the streets, police officer, and say, hey, look, you want to do some undercover? And I go, oh, yeah, buy some dope. I go, no, you got to be like a prostitute. No, I can't do that. You know, you, you want to make sure they want to do it. The ones that want to do it, I tell them we can do all the preparing and preparation we can do. But once you go behind that closed door, you're on your own until we get the door open. Now, you got to ask yourself, how long is it going to take me to get through this door before you get killed? It's going to happen in a blink of an eye. Wow. So um, knock on wood, we never had any problems. Uh, We had a guy once... uh, try to try to rape the undercover by grabbing her and all that you know but uh we always get a master key before we because if you know you're going into it and you have the time to prepare for it you prepare for it so we got a master key from the front desk and uh, there was potato soup being yelled on that one <laughs> <laughs> but anyway we got in we charged him with sexual assault because he was actually trying to rape her so um i i, I don't think there's any Real preparing you can do. You, you do the best you can, and you just kind of cross your fingers. I hate to say that and hope everything goes right. I mean, we teach them. To, I teach them to do certain things, you know. Uh, if you feel uncomfortable at any time, walk out. Leave. Well, you probably feel uncomfortable the Well, whole I'm just time. saying, if you're talking to, if, she, if a female officer's talking to a John, and at any time you feel like something's not right, the case ain't worth it. Say, look, I got to go downstairs. I got to tell my driver to come back in an hour. Walk out. Or walk into the bathroom and say, look, I got to go to the bathroom. I'm going to clean myself up. Lock the door. Start yelling. Potato soup. Because it's over with. You know, don't. I, 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 that's one of the hardest things undercover people have is shutting down a deal. They, they want to do the deal. No matter how many danger flags come up. I mean, they want to do the deal. You know, um, I had a deal go bad on me on an undercover deal. 
uh, I was buying $30,000 worth of uh, meth. And I distinctly remember I had a red Mustang 5.0 two-door and a super fast car, really nice. And unknown to me, the informant that I was using basically double-crossed me. He introduced me to a guy that basically wanted to rob me. So we met on a parking lot. He thought I had $30,000 in the trunk. Uh, the undercar... Um, the CI, confidential informant, sitting in the back seat. So I feel confident that he's not going to do anything. And the bad guy's sitting on the pastor side. Well, the pastor pulls out a gun, smacks me in the face with it, tells me he wants the money. And I tell him, and everybody knows, because I'm wired up, the car's wired. Everybody knows it's gone bad. And you prepare for these things, but it still doesn't matter how much you prepare, a blink of an eye. So uh, he wants me to get the money out of the trunk. And I said, well, I got to get out. And he goes, and he wanted, I was, I was buying time by talking to him. He wanted me to give the keys to the CI, the CI to get the money out, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, uh, I see the backups coming up to the car and I roll out of the Mustang and they basically pistol paralyze the guy, put guns on him and get him out of the car. And then we later find out interviewing him that the CI had set this up as well. So we charged him, both of them, for attempted robbery. He had, he had told the guy, you're going to be able to rob, the, even though he knew you were a police officer? Yeah. Was he stupid, or did he think? <laughs> we, to this day, ne- couldn't understand, why would you tell a guy that I have 30000 when you know police are all around the place? He goes, well, I thought maybe you could pull it off. <laughs> I mean, you, you laugh, and, and people are that stupid. You're like, are you for real? Yeah. Well, anyway, the end of the story is when we got the gun, it was a uh, it was a nine millimeter, and he had pulled the trigger, and it had dented the primer, but it didn't go off. So he tried to shoot me. Obviously, I'd have been shot in the back probably when I rolled out. Oh my god! Yeah, so, well, what do you think about the the issues around people have about guns? You know, you mentioned mm-hmm. school shootings. You've now said I had a guy attempt to shoot me. Mm-hmm. What do you think about uh, guns being? being um, available in the U.S. the way that they are? I think, we got enough, I think we got enough laws. I think the problem is that we just don't enforce them right. I, I, there's a lot of laws out there. I just don't think we enforce them. And what I mean by that, there's laws out there about people that are, that are on drugs or drinking are not supposed to have guns. And, and I don't know why. Nobody wants to take people's guns. They don't want to seize them. I think that the courts probably need to step in and basically say, if you violate any of these rules, we're going to take your gun. And I'll even go farther than that. I, I've handled calls where people's cars have been broken into. And, I, and when I mean broken into, I mean they didn't lock their car. And someone got in the car and took the gun from out from underneath the seat. Now, to me, that's a little irresponsible. Why did you have a gun in an unlocked car under the seat? Yeah, why are you storing a gun in a car right. at all? Yeah. I had a guy in Kirkwood had a gun stolen. And they call us just... We have an informant can find out. Two weeks later, same thing happened again. He bought another gun, put it in the car, unlocked, and they stole the second gun. So to me, people like that, the laws are there. I think you need to hold people accountable for some of these guns. When you talk about kids shooting themselves at houses, why wasn't the gun locked up? You know, I mean, there's 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 accountability for these guns. I just don't think we enforce enough. But I, I, I do think there's enough laws on the books. I really do. I just think you need to enforce them.
You know, one of the one of the one of the laws that helps me in law enforcement a lot is convicted felons that are caught with another gun. Federally, it's an automatic five years. So, and that's a, that that's a pretty good law. So, if you're a felon and you get caught with a gun, you're going to jail for five years, and that that is is one of the better ones. And is that forever? If you if you've committed one felony, then forever you can't own a gun in the U.S. If you've been convicted of a felony, yes. Okay, I guess I didn't know. Yeah, that. yeah, you can't have, you can't own any guns. Yeah, you can't even have ammo. Uh, we've uh, we've arrested gang members for having like boxes of ammo, and they're like, "Why well, do you have any gun?" Well, the law says you can't have ammo either. But why do you have ammo? The gun's somewhere. We just didn't find it. Yeah, ammo's not gonna. You're yeah, not gonna go so, hit it with uh, a hammer. Um, that, that, that's a good law. But I, I do. Once again, I do believe there's enough. There's enough uh, rules on the on the books. When you think about, um, so people have pulled guns on you. Mm-hmm. Have Have you been forced to to pull out your weapon? Yes. Yes. Several times. I uh, I've only had to discharge it once in forty years. I um, I was working the streets, and a, a little bit of backstory on this is back uh, in the early '80s, there was a couple that was abducted and murdered from a schnooks lot. They found their bodies in the city. She was raped, and uh, it was right before Christmas. I remember. Well, anyway, uniform patrol guys were really like basically, as they say, hitting the bushes trying to find out, talking to people, what who who did this murder, and I remember trying to stop a car that uh, was in the area of the Schnook store like about three days after the murder. And uh, the guy took off. So I get in a pursuit, and uh, we go down a subdivision, and he jumps out and runs between two houses, and it's dark as dark can be. And I run and come around the corner, and I hear the fence, and I'm thinking, oh, he cleared the fence. And I come around the corner, and towards like the back of the yard, I didn't. I don't recall hearing it, but I sure saw it. And the muzzle flashes, pop, 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 and uh, I hit the ground and started doing return fire on him. And uh, we threw rounds back and forth for a couple of time. And I, I had the forethought to know that I probably shouldn't move because the street light was at my back, so I would have been silhouetted. And uh, I just laid on the ground and got on the radio, and started screaming for help. And uh, everybody got there. Couldn't find him. Found my rounds. He had run up a hill, and the rounds had went into the hill. Um, and his rounds had hit the house behind me. We uh, didn't find him. Ultimately, they fingerprinted the car, and they later found him. And uh, he had nothing to do with the murders, but they ended up charging him for attempted murder on me. And when you think back on a guy shooting at you, trying to kill you, do you, are you angry with him? Not at first. You know, I, excuse me, when it first happened, your, your training takes over. But I will tell you, when it's over and you're like, helps there, you're scared. The, I mean, I don't care who you are. The scaredness comes in. You're like, good God Almighty. I mean, you really start thinking about being scared. You know, so these, these stories where you see policemen are a macho and all that, don't buy that for a minute. You, you put any policeman in the right situation, they'll walk away and they'll be scared. Um, that one, yeah, you know. Someone start throwing some rounds at you and you're thinking, first you're thinking, why? And then you're thinking, well, maybe I do have the killer that killed this couple, you know. And, well, you're uh, thinking about the case. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're thinking, you're thinking, what, what's going on? And, and, and it turned out the car was stolen. He ran because the car was stolen. I forgot they had that. That's why he ran. And thought he'd throw some rounds at me, so...
what is the calculus that's going on when it when it's time to go from my hand is on the gun to I'm pulling it out and it's now ready to go? Um, pretty much when you fear that your life is about to, that's in danger right at that moment. That that it's a sense that you 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 feel that get your gun. And what I mean by that, I've had I've pulled over cars in the middle of the night, four deep with people, and everybody's fidgeting around and acting weird. And right off the bat, those are all red flags. Just something don't feel right, you know. And uh, so you usually call for a backup, but sometimes your backups are pretty far away. Uh, so ultimately, you still have to walk up there and talk to the people. Now, do you walk up and have your gun in your hand and stick it in their face? No, you don't do that. Do you pull your gun out and put it by your side? So all you have to do is raise it up a few inches because your reaction is going to be a lot slower than their actions. So if they pull a gun, you've already almost lost the fight. You know? So you're just trying to, trying to make your odds better. So when I say like that, is, yeah, I've had to pull it out, hold it on my side. I've had burglary calls where I had to go into a house and uh, walk through the house with the gun out uh, and, and catch people in the house doing the burglary. Um, answer call for bank robbery, you know, going to the bank with your gun out, you know. Um, Wait, people really do rob banks? Yeah, yeah, they do rob banks still, yeah. That sounds, you know, I see bank robberies on movies and I think only an idiot would do that. Don't they all get caught? Um, I'd say a large percentage of them get caught now. Yeah, with the technology out there, I mean, there's a lot of technology out there. Um one of the things, uh, it's probably a little bit of a trade secret, I shouldn't say, but uh, a lot of the money is, is, uh, is um, trackable, electronic tracked. So when you rob the bank, it tells you right where you're at, GPS. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. So if you rob the bank and take off of the money, it automatically is giving police cars. Certain police cars have the, have the equipment in it, and automatically tells you where you're at. And all you do is follow like a GPS and go, there he is. So... Yeah, the technology. When you're going in and you've pulled out your service weapon, um, mm -hmm. what's going on with your uh, emotions or your your adrenaline system? Is it is that something you learn to control and it becomes not that big of a deal, or are you are you hearing your pulse in your ears? You hear your pulse. I mean, everything is heightened. I mean, you definitely know you're on your game. Your heart starts pounding. You know, you're. I mean. Everything you're trying to trying to take everything in to to assess the situation you just gotten yourself into, um, but uh, you know, in the back of your mind you're thinking, I don't want to die today, so you have to make a choice. You know, some people are very offended when they hear a policeman pulled a gun uh, and went into a house or something. You know, I, I tell people you got to look at uh, you got to look at their their angle. You know, like walking up to a car. Would you just walk up in any car and act like nothing's going on? You have no clue what's in the car. You have no idea what they did just prior. You know, are most people good people? Oh, absolutely. But I can't pick out all those. You know, if I, if I had a crystal ball that said, oh, this is a bunch of great kids here in this car, even though there's 10 of them, great. But you have no clue. So... So what should people know then about, so I would say in the last two years, three years, five since Ferguson, um, there are a lot, there's a lot of tension around police officers uh, using their weapon on people that are unarmed. Mm -hmm. And when I watch the news, it seems like the, the, 
it seems like it is portrayed that the police officers are are being brutal or or irresponsible. But as a person that's been there forty years, what do you think of the way they're portrayed and and the and the and the sense that police officers are really kind of trigger happy? Um, are there bad policemen? Absolutely. There's bad people in every profession. Once again, I tell people, don't make a judgment until you have all the evidence. If a policeman shoots somebody and he's not justified, let the evidence take you that way. It seems like, and I'll use Ferguson, it seems like when a, when a police officer shoots somebody, and predominantly of color, it was a bad shoot, period, bad shoot, no matter what the circumstances are. And I think once the evidence comes out and people go, well, that probably was more justified than we thought. But by then the damage is already done because people have already formulated their opinion. Uh, Ferguson is, is a prime example. I mean, uh, when that first come out, I remember talking to police officers and says, you know what's going to solve this crime and whether it was justified or not is the people that live in that, that neighborhood, those apartments, that actually saw what happened. If they step up and tell the truth, we'll know what really happened. Because obviously you're going to have people that are going to side with the victim and say, hey, he had his hands up, he didn't charge. Okay, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. And then you're going to have other people that say, oh, the policeman was straight out justified. The evidence will show it, but let let it let it follow its course. Don't 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 assume that he's that he did something wrong. And uh, like I said, Ferguson was one of them. I had to work to Ferguson riots, and uh, it, it's not a fun thing to work. You know? When you say the Ferguson riots, so for anybody that wasn't living in St. Louis, you want to give a little bit of a background as to what happened? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Ferguson. There was a white police officer that shot a uh, young black male, killed him, and um, originally. Um, People come out and thought it was an unjustified shooting. And uh, the crowd got angry. And there was other things that, that led to it also, not just the shootings. It was, it was a combination. I think people were just tired of being treated certain ways in regards to tickets being issued, traffic stops. And I get that, and I can expand on that too because I've, I've been part of that. Uh, but I think people were, like, fed up. I think the shooting was a catalyst that set it off. But I think it was the wrong one. I think people should have waited for the facts, let that play out, and then address what your problems really were. Uh, anyway, in that case, uh, people didn't like that uh, he wasn't being charged immediately. And um, people started rioting and burning the city up. And then ultimately, the case went to a grand jury, and they found that it was a justified shooting. And they burnt the city up again and rioted. And... Uh, that's when a lot of law enforcement from different police departments, municipalities were called in to try to uh, quell the disturbance. And so then what would your role have been when you were responding to the Ferguson riots? Uh, our role was to keep people away from certain areas, kind of trying to, trying to contain people to stay in a certain spot, not to let them just roam all over the neighborhood or the business district and destroy everything. You try to, you try to keep them, in a certain spot so you can keep an eye on everybody and let them protest. But then it gets to the point where you have to disperse the protest for a number of reasons. Either they're throwing things or shooting at you, or maybe the city has decided, hey, we want to open the street up and get commerce going. Yeah. So whatever the reason is, you have to disperse the rioters. And that just inflames people. They don't want to be moved. They don't want to be told. And uh, from there, it just escalates every time. So uh, you start getting pelted. What happened in the Ferguson riots that a police officer would see 
that uh, somebody just watching it on television wouldn't have seen? Um, one of the things that really surprised me, and I'm not really surprised, but I thought, wow, is how many shots were being fired. Shots? Yeah, random shots. And not by police, just people shooting. Just You'd hear bullets going off constantly. I mean, and you'd hear some high-powered, rapid, like, assault rifles being shot somewhere. And you kept thinking, boy, I sure hope one of these rounds doesn't find a spot and hit me, you know? So uh, that, that was kind of a surprise to me, how many, how many uh, rounds of ammo were being shot off randomly, you know? Uh, other than that, uh, most people during the daytime weren't bad people. They were violent. Uh, not violent. They were angry, understandable. They wanted their opinion heard. I get that. But when it got more towards the nighttime, people just wanted to steal and loot. And the and the um, the crowd itself changed in like who was really in the crowd. It wasn't people that wanted to wanted to protest. It was people that wanted to to burn the place down. Um, so you have to deal with that. You would have been an older police officer relative to a lot of the guys that were on the street. And I remember, I don't know, maybe six months ago as they were uh, doing inquiries into people's text messages that, as they were getting ready. I read that as, you know, 20-something-year-old young guys that are having a lot, maybe, maybe some fear and adrenaline. The police officers that are saying, hey, we're going to go crack some heads tonight or we're going to go. I, I read that as uh, you know, a bunch of young guys trying to psych themselves up to go be in a tense situation. Mm -hmm. um, and then when it gets brought to the light of day, there are a lot of text messages that nobody really wants brought to the light of day mm -hmm. when you think you're talking to your buddies. But as a police officer that also represents the the side of law enforcement, what it, when you read those text messages of those guys sending back, I don't know if you did or not. You, you I, I saw a couple of them, but I didn't read all of them. What do you think of that? Um, I call, I got a name for policemen like that, and I run across them in my career, and I call them yahoos. You get this guy that, that uh, gets into police work, usually young ones, and you get some, most of them are really good guys that, that, and women that do a really great job. But you get a small percentage that are straight up yahoos that just think, I'm a cowboy and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. You know, and those are the ones that usually start sending the text back and forth to each other. And then they get their buddy up on it and he starts sending texts. And to me, first thing I want to say, you're stupid. You can't be that stupid, but you're stupid, you know? Uh, and that's what I sense it. Some yahoo cop that just, He'd be the one that would cause the problem. He'd be the one that would go into the crowd and probably crack somebody with a stick, and the whole thing starts. And now they've got a reason. And now to they got back. a reason. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's right. I mean, I remember going to calls as a policeman, and uh, the converse, the, the 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 situation's calm, and then you'd always have that one policeman show up when it's all over with, and cause everybody to up in arms at you before you know it, you're fighting the whole family because one policeman came in there and either said the wrong thing or tried to push his authority when the situation's already come, you know? And, um, every once in a while, when you get that policeman among other policemen, you know, I said, Oh God, here he comes. Get ready. Cause you, you label them, you know? And, and, and usually the older coppers that knew it would call them out and go, look, you need to get out, go back. We don't need you here. You know, as a younger copper, you're like, He's been all longer than me, but I know he's going to cause me problems, you know? So, yeah. And younger coppers have, a, have a, back in my day, 
were a little worried about saying stuff because they want to be accepted. And I think that still holds true now, but I don't think it's as bad as it was, you know. Uh, I don't mean it in a bad way, but I, I'm just saying you, you just kind of didn't want to rock the boat, you know. So you just kind of went along with things. Um, that's it, really. So now you're training police officers, mm -hmm. or you, you have been in, in Kirkwood. Yeah. What is different about the police officers that are entering now than were when, when you joined up in the 70s? When I joined up... Um, Majority of the people, and I, I tell young people this, when I got on, it was a career. I, I, I want to be a policeman for a career. I knew I was going to do this probably forever. A lot of them that come on now, it's a job. Job. There's a big difference between a job and a career. The guys that come on, and I don't say all of them, but the, the, there's, there's a lot of them that come on. It's a paycheck. I'm here. If I find something different, I'm gone. You know, I don't. And when you have that mindset, your heart's not really in the job. You're not really there to help people. You're just here handling your calls, moving on, write a ticket or two, get your paycheck, and you're happy. You know, uh, guys that make it a career go out there and and really try to make a change. You know, uh, try. What do you, what do you think changed that made it so people view it as a job instead of a career now? I think it's because uh, it, it's hard to find people to be policemen. You know, back back in my days, it was a, it was a um, a career that had honor, like a fireman. You know, if you're a policeman, like, oh, yeah, you know, great. You're a soldier, great. Now it's not that way anymore. You know, you're a policeman. It's almost like you need to hide because... Uh, you I really would, feel that way. Uh, I, I did right during the Ferguson and, and shortly after. God, it's horrible with policemen. I mean, wow. everybody's against you because that's all we dealt with, the people that were cussing you out, throwing stuff at you. Uh, I remember going to a gas station in uniform to gas up my car. And people want to say, like, sly remarks, you know, pig sounds, stuff like that. You know, I mean, come on. Would I get upset? No, but I'm thinking, Jesus, really? You know, I mean, you want to you want to make a scene at a gas station because I'm a policeman? That You'd get that kind of stuff. I will also say that eventually, and how do I want to explain it, the minority is what everybody heard. We weren't hearing from the majority of the people. And what I mean by that is I think the majority of the people realize, hey, this is wrong, treating all these police officers like that. Then, then the majority of people start stepping up, and that's when you start, start seeing like counter-protest and backing the blue up, they called it. Uh, in my At that time, I was probably uh, 35 years in the career, now maybe 37. First time I ever had people walk up to me and thank me for being a police officer in my whole career, you know? I remember my wife and me were at a uh, at a restaurant eating um, in a uniform, and somebody bought my my lunch for me, and I have no clue who it was. And what I'm getting at is not that everybody got to buy my lunch, but I'm like, wow, people do really care, you know. Uh, and that, that meant a lot to me. And I'm talking a probably 37 year patrolman by that time. It's the first time I ever had my whole career, you know. You had more people coming out and thanking you for your job. Uh, but originally, during the Ferguson, you, you couldn't do anything right. You couldn't even stand there without people screaming and spitting and throwing stuff at you. Um, I think a lot of people saw some of that stuff on the news, but I don't think they realized how bad it really was, you know? I mean, yeah, certainly not. The, I was living, um, at the time, about a half a mile off of the Del Mar Loop. Mm -hmm. And there was not, it wasn't anywhere near what Ferguson was, but there were certainly people showing up to throw rocks and break all the windows mm -hmm. there. And uh, 
I had not, since I had lived in Africa, I had never seen a group of people that, that you really didn't know what they were going to do next. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I was pretty conflicted about the whole thing because on the one hand, uh, you, you see that people are, are, are feeling like they have to be heard, like something has gone really, really wrong in their city and that they don't view the cops, uh, or really any of the systems as being on their side. But on the other hand, I had also never been, f uh, afraid living in the United States. But when, when you, you could go outside of my backyard and hear the mobs of people yelling, I don't want that. Whatever sure. we need to do to stop that, let's stop that. Mm -hmm. And so th that was a really tense time. I think if you weren't living in St. Louis, it's easy to look and just say, oh, that's a you know bad place or a rough place. But I don't think people really knew how, how that all felt to everybody. Right, right. I, I, I do believe, and like I told you, I think the... Um the, uh, the murder was just something that set it off. I think the underlying problem that I see it being a police officer was, uh, and I don't want to label, but I'm just going to say what I think, is uh, a lot of smaller departments, and some of the medium-sized, wrote a lot of tickets for some stupid stuff. And I, and I get you got to write tickets to people, but sometimes you can overdo it. Oh well, and I can. I'm I'm in agreement with you on this. That that uh, so for anybody that's outside of St. Louis, St. Louis is actually divided between the county and the city. The city mm -hmm. is not a part of the county, and instead there are how many how many municipalities? Oh, I, I want to say ninety something. Ninety some municipalities, and there was a period of time, particularly in the northern part of the county, correct, where municipalities were deriving more than fifty percent of their income from speeding tickets and parking tickets and all, all sorts of like uh, minor violations. Mm -hmm. And it in effect was a huge tax on really some of the, the, the least able to pay that tax. Now they're getting into the court system and now every time they turn around, they're getting harassed by police. Oh yeah. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, I do agree. I do agree. You could drive a car through North County, probably from one end to the other probably go through five or six municipalities. Now, let's say you don't have plates on your car. You theoretically could get stopped six times, given six tickets in one day for the same thing. Now, think how what the cost of that is. Now, you try to pay it. You don't have the money. You go to the courts. They try to work a payment plan out for you. You miss a court date. Now you get locked up. And if you're already the type of person that doesn't have money to get plates on your car or, or things aren't sure coordinated enough, now you're locked up. Right. Now you got a real problem. Right, right. And there's there was one police department which I I even told the kid I had to pick a prisoner up for Kirkwood. <clears throat> and I won't say which police department it was, but he got locked up in another municipality. That police department had to go to that municipality, pick him up and bring him back to their department where they booked him through. They charged him another $50 on his fines for driving him from one department to another. And now he's responsible for the ticket that he originally had, plus another $50 for the ticket for getting a car ride. And he was telling me this, and I go, that's wrong. I mean, you probably need to get an attorney. That, that, that's just money taken right there. And if you're making $8 an hour, that's, that's a full day of work. Just Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm saying the underlying problem, in my opinion, was that kind of stuff. And that was, that was a lot in North County. You know, I'm not saying predominantly Ferguson did that, but I do know some of the municipalities were counting on that money and they would ticket the hell out of people.
if there was if there was one small good thing that came out of that uh, Ferguson riots, it was that it made people really pay attention to some of these issues that you're talking about. So five years ago, they made the realization that there are a whole bunch of these municipalities that are doing this. So they, I don't remember the exact names of the laws, but they essentially changed it so you couldn't derive 50% of your income Correct. from these tickets. Uh, how, how did that end up working up? Now you have police officers that are that were spending a majority of their day basically being tax collectors. What what ended, what was the result of that law change? Well, in my opinion, the uh, they're real policemen now. They're out there doing what they're supposed to be doing, looking for crime, patrolling the subdivisions, patrolling the malls, business districts. The problem that you have is you can't measure preventing crime. And what I mean by that, if I go out and write 10 tickets, oh, wow, you wrote 10 tickets. I run around a neighborhood for a week and doesn't have a burglary, you hear crickets. Okay. You, you, that's something you can't measure. Yeah. So you can't tell a police officer, oh, you did a great job. You had no burglaries in here. It's like, well, how many tickets did you write? You know, And they would never come out and tell you, hey, you need 10, you need 12. They can't do that. But it, you can kind of get an idea when some guy writes 10 and they say to you, oh, well, he wrote 10 and you have three. You get the you get the you get the idea of what they're telling. They're not coming out, but they're they're telling you. So I think the good thing was is people got back to real police work. You got out there and you did your job. You find criminals, you lock them up. It's not all about writing tickets. Do tickets play a part in it? Sure. But it, it shouldn't be the main thing you do as a policeman, you know? Um and and that comes in and I'll bring it up is the cameras. You know, I get asked a lot about what I think about the cameras that policemen wear. And I, I really have mixed emotions on both of them. Uh, I think there was always a small percentage of police officers that were bad. And I think statistics. Oh, you're talking body cams. Body you're, not, cam. you're not talking no, traffic I'm talking cams. About body cameras. Okay, body cameras. I, I, I think there was always a small percentage and I, of policemen that were bad. And I think statistics kind of show that from what I read. But uh, so the, the cameras come into play. And uh, I think there's a play, place for them, but it's a double-edged sword. And people say, well, why is that? It keeps the policeman honest that you're not doing what you shouldn't do. Well, what it does, it tells everybody, if it wasn't video recorded, it didn't happen. If that guy punched a policeman and it wasn't recorded, he didn't punch him. Well, that's what people think about cameras, is if it's not recorded, then it didn't happen. Well, that's not, that's not true. I never thought about that, that that ends up becoming a... Um a real challenge because I don't want to, I don't want a surveillance state. I don't want everything we're ever done recorded. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, I do want to be able to check and say, who was the instigator here? Who really did cause the problem? Sure. Sure. And, and, and going along those lines is uh, with the camera system, it took discretion away from a police officer and people kind of look at me and go, well, what do you mean? I go, okay, I pull you over. You're a 17 year old kid. You got a bag of weed on you. You got two joints. I don't care what you have. I got a camera on. What do you think I'm mandated to do now? Yeah, because now there's evidence. I, I got to lock you up. Yeah, wow. I got to tow your car. Wow. And I, you know, back in my day, I tear it up and put it on the streets. Hey, dump this out. Get out of here. Because I don't want to ruin some 17-year-old kid's life. I mean, people may say, oh, well, you're a police officer. You're going to force the law. There's more to police work than ruin people's lives, you know? And they go, well, you're, you're picking and choosing who which I... That's, that's, that's part of discretion. You know, if I come across a kid who's out like belligerent and ignorant and probably had multiples, will he probably get a break? 
you know, probably not, but it really depends. I mean, I've given kids break that had really bad records because they honestly seem like they're trying to change their life around. You know, some kids get to a point where they just need that break. Uh, but anyway, back to the cameras. If it's on camera, you got to do something. You pull the guy over for speeding. Sir, you're speeding because the cameras click on like 30 seconds before you actually turn them on. Like if you flip the lights on, they're on, they go back 30 seconds. So they record everything prior. So um, you pull the guy over for speed. Do you give him a ticket? You don't give him a ticket. Well, that's, I, th- that would add to the tension that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. If, if a police officer doesn't have any discretion and they're just robotic mm-hmm. and you have to decide on the side of the road. And I mean, I guess you could play the devil's advocate and you could say, well, you, you as a police officer, you aren't, I, I don't know if you guys are taught to have discretion. Um, but you could say, somebody would say, well, I don't really want the police officer to have discretion because I want it to be even for everybody. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Uh, I'm going to disagree with that because uh, I don't think you need to lump everybody up in the same bundle and say everybody's the same. Everybody has their own problems in life, their own issues, financial problems, family problems. And for me to, to blanketly treat everybody the same, I, I just don't think that's fair to the individual. I really don't. Now, the person that probably gets the break thinks it is. The person that doesn't thinks it's not. Do you give everybody tickets? Do I lock everybody up for a joint? I mean, think about it. Everybody gets locked up. First of all, you're going to inundate the court system. You know, the guy's not, you know, you're going to get people not going to show up. Then you run into this municipality thing, you know, where you get bounced around and bounced. I think you need to give officers discretion, you know. Uh, I do recall one in particular case where, and you may or may not agree, the the officer had a body camera on, he turns his sirens on and everything, so the camera's activated. And while he's driving to get to a priority call, people are not pulling over, cutting him off, you know, you get that. So as he's driving, windows up, he says some few choice words, you know. Well, they review the body camera for whatever reason, and they see him like, you know, someone cut him off, like, hey, you asshole. They send him the man, uh, anger management class and write him up for inappropriate language. Now, is that fair? I don't know. To me, no, it's not. You know, you're in a car, you're pissed off because people aren't obeying the law. You're saying it to yourself. You're not hanging your head out. You're just saying it. But it got recorded on camera. So... You know, you get that kind of stuff, you know, you, like you say, you don't want a, a state to record everything in law enforcement. Originally, I think the camera system came out just to validate that a crime had happened. Now it's turned into a big brother to the point of like, well, we reviewed the camera just to be reviewing them. And you didn't have your hat on when you got out of your police car. That's a reprimand. And they're really doing that. They can't do that. Okay. They can do that. Back in my day, hats were a big deal. When I first came on the police department, um, and I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, but anyway, you would get rolled up for stuff like that. When I applied for the city of Kirkwood, one of the uh, things they do is a background check on you. Well, obviously, I'd have been a policeman for 30 years prior to that. Uh, and they ask you, have you ever been rolled up in your career? And I laugh, and I go, yeah. And they go, well, how many times? I go, six. Whoa, <laughs> whoa you know what I mean? That people, whoa, six times. You, what do you, you know, why are you a policeman? And they go, what'd you do? I go, well, four of them, I didn't have my hat on. And they go, no, really, what'd you get, locked, what'd you get rode up for? I didn't have my hat on. I got rode up for not having my police hat on back in the early days. 
And I got wrote up one time for not having my tie on. I had clipped it off to the side and forgot because I was writing a report in the police car. And when I got out, I got wrote up for that. So five of those for that. One of them was when you read the, and I, and it, when I say it, the last one people are like, No, wow. I'm looking forward to no. this. I want to know. Yeah. The last one I got, the heading was forged county documents. I got wrote up for forging county documents. Now you're thinking, whoa. Whoa. I've got a bad dude yeah, on my yeah, You should be fired guess, for this yeah. one. Well, the circumstances on that was, is uh, back in my day, when you wrote a ticket to somebody, there used to be a box that you had to write what their, where their employee, their employer. And I think I'd wrote like five tickets, uh, speeding uh, assignment I had. And my sergeant had already taken off. I had a habit of just putting a line in the box. If you weren't employed, I'd just write a line. And the other two tickets, I think I put what they did. So I turned the stack of tickets in to the uncommon sergeant. He looks at him and puts a note to him. Well, you need to put something in the box. And he puts what is called his DSM, which is kind of like your badge number, on the bottom of two of the tickets. And the other three, he didn't put it, which means they're approved. So I I put unemployed. And at the very bottom, I wrote his DSN, his badge number. And I put him back in his box. Well, the next day he comes and he sees him. And a memory calls me in and he goes, did you fix those tickets? I go, yeah. He goes, did you put my DSN on the bottom of those tickets? I go, well, yeah. He goes, I'm writing you up. You forged official county document. And I got wrote up for that. What, what was his case that he just didn't want to have his number written on, on a... I didn't have the authorization to write his badge number on those three tickets. Whoa. Even though I turned it back into him, I wasn't trying to get past him on it. I just turned the three tickets back in. So it just shows you some of the stupid things you get wrote up with. And that goes with you your whole career. That stays with you. So I tell people, especially upper management, when you start writing these people up for stupid stuff, and let's say something happens like a lawsuit against a police officer or the department, and they bring you in and they say, officer, can you tell me how many times you've been wrote up? Six. Okay, no more questions. Now, what's that leave you with? Yeah. You're like, whoa, what are you in police work? When in fact, well, what were they? I didn't have my hat on. Didn't have my tie on. You know, but anyway, they kind of got away from that kind of stuff. You know, they don't, they, they don't enforce a lot of that stuff anymore, like hats and ties. And Police departments have changed over the years. It's interesting to think about a police officer having the same sort of challenges at work with the with a grumpy boss or Mm -hmm. you know the hr department as just anybody else that has a job at a at a regular place oh yeah yeah it really is i mean um everybody wants a second guess you after it's done you know um the bad thing of this job is you have to wear so many hats and make so many decisions uh some of them are good decisions some are bad decisions some of them i'll be the first to say you're not sure what the decision should be you know when you get into certain things like uh, court orders for families, uh, the moms and dads, the kids, you may have two or three court orders, and you're like, which one is it? I have no clue. You know, you make the wrong move. People want to take you to court and sue you right off the bat. You know, so uh, it, it's it's a lot harder now, but um, it's still a fun career. That's something you want to do. So the the – the last question I'll ask today, and it's one that I thought of actually the very first one that I thought of when uh, I found out you were going to be able to do this interview, which has been great. I'm so glad you've come. A few years ago, I was talking with um, um, a, a boss of mine at my last job, and uh, they were making some decisions 
that were um, about, they, they were kind of political decisions. And it was really what I perceived to be really, really liberal. And I was just saying, hey, just so you're aware, this is going to be perceived as you, you representing the company as being politically active in this direction. And, uh, and, the, and the woman um, sat across from me, her face just you know, got really dour. And, and she was like, no, 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 you, you don't understand. I have a thin blue line uh, sign in my front yard and, um, and meaning like, I'm not liberal, I'm thin blue line. And I actually at the time had never even heard of that. Mm -hmm. So I have wondered for a very long time, uh, what the origins of that are, how police officers actually feel about that sign and, and what in the hell she meant by that. Um, and so I, I'm interested in, in your take on this. So for anybody that doesn't know, what is the thin blue line sign that people put out? Uh, it's pretty much a what it looks like. It's pretty much an American flag that's basically in, in black and white. But right in the middle of the stripes, there's one blue line. And uh, basically what it, what it represents is that we support you as law enforcement. And that really took a grass hold right after the Ferguson. Because like I told you, when Ferguson came around, you had a, in my opinion, you had a, a, a small group that were really anti-police. Didn't matter what you did. And then finally, the majority of the people said, you know, this is not right. You can't blame all these policemen. You can't be against all of them. They're family men. And uh, people started supporting policemen. And the support was the blue line. And uh, it just kind of grew from there. Um, so when you see them, it's, it's not that they, they, uh, they're liberal or they're not liberal or conservative. It just means they support the police officers. That's all that means. That 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 we know you have a hard job and you got to make some decisions, uh, and we support you. That's all that means. It was interesting when I first observed that it would be out in the suburbs of St. Louis. But my wife and I were in New York two weeks ago, and I saw that thing everywhere. Mm -hmm. I, I I was uh, shocked. I mean, it was on cabs. It was on. SUVs. Are you surprised to see how much that's spread? Uh, yeah, I am. Like I said, uh, and going back to Ferguson, when uh, when uh, all the riots and everything was happening, you really, as a policeman, you really thought, what did we do wrong? I mean, what, what did I do wrong? Why does everybody hate me for me doing a job? I'm doing a job that you hired me to do. I didn't kill that boy. I didn't break the windows and loot. I mean, I'm no different than anybody else. And you and you started to wondering, maybe maybe nobody does like me anymore, you know? And you start thinking that, you think, golly. And then you count on other police officers for support, you know? And then society as a whole, I think, grabbed onto that and said, hey, these guys need support, you know? They're, they're, they're here for us, and we are here for the people. Uh, so uh, when it took hold and it started spreading, it kind of cheered you up. Kind of like, wow, people do think we're doing a good job, you know? And, uh, and like I said, um, you do have police officers that are bad. When I, when I was in the Bureau of Special Investigation, we investigated police officers for corruption. Um, and if the case was found, we'd present it to the prosecutor, you know? So do we police our own? Yes. Do we police them the way people want them policed? Probably not. Cause I think everybody thinks every policeman's done something bad. I, I kind of think that, but, uh, it's like anything else. Wait until the evidence comes in, and then the then whatever the charges will be appropriate. Uh, sometimes people just can't handle that. If there's no charges, they're thinking, "Oh, there's a cover up. There's something bad." 
you can't prove in a court of law, you have no case. And that's with anybody. It doesn't have to be a policeman. So... Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. It's actually by far the longest conversation I've ever had with a police <laughs> officer and probably the longest conversation the listeners have ever heard. So thank you, and I will definitely be inviting you back. So okay. let's okay. Uh, let's do this again. Detective thank you so Bob much. Bays, thank you for coming. All righty, thank you. That's it for this week's podcast. A big thank you to Bob Bays, who sat down and had no idea what we were going to talk about, but was willing to be so genuine and open and honest, and we got to learn so much. If you liked and learned from this podcast, I hope you'll hit the like button and consider subscribing. And if you're on a podcast, just know that last week we had a big bump in the number of people that reviewed the podcast and gave us five-star reviews. That really helps us out no matter what platform you're getting your podcasts from because it tells the algorithms to say, hey, this is something that people like and they're enjoying and we want to show it to more people. If you have any comments or things that can help me get better, you can always tweet them at me at Vance Crow or make sure you can leave something on a comment below. I'd be happy to read it and I'll try and reply. Thanks so much for uh, listening and I hope you have a great week. We'll be back next week with a conversation with a dietitian that I think is going to be pretty interesting and open up uh, some views on the way food works that you might not have thought of before.